Living Adventurously is brought to you in partnership with Kamut, the route planning and navigation app that helps you make the most of your outdoor adventures. Whether you're cycling, hiking, running or bikepacking, Kamut's easy-to-use technology will get you out the door and exploring more of the great outdoors. You can see where I've been exploring by checking out the highlights of my journey on Kamut. Just follow the link in the show notes. My name is Alistair Humphreys. I set out on a bicycle journey around Yorkshire to speak to interesting, ordinary people who, in very different ways, are making an effort to live adventurously. I wanted to talk about what they do, about the barriers they've faced along the way, and to seek their perspective on some of the big questions that all of us encounter in our lives. Welcome to Living Adventurously. <laughs> I've written here, needs intro music. Um, okay, here we go. Um... <laughs> Have a loop. The Black Swan at Olstead was rated the best restaurant in the world by TripAdvisor in 2017. And the chef, Tommy Banks, was the youngest in the world to receive a Michelin star. Now, as a connoisseur of banana sandwiches and dehydrated camping meals, this was not my usual world. But that's exactly the sort of thing that I was interested in on this bike ride. So I went to visit Tommy at the Black Swan. And in the end, I spent a couple of hours chatting with Tommy about his choice between deciding whether to run a cheap restaurant or a brilliant one, um, about how placing restrictions can actually encourage your creativity um, and the catalyst that serious illness proved to be in his life. We talked about ambition, defining success, and his little tip of doing three small things a day to make the black swan better, um, as well as talking about the delights of milk vending machines, cricket and flapjacks. And um, no, to answer what you're thinking, I didn't manage to blag a meal at the black swan, but the coffee was very nice. Please, can, can I test the levels by asking you, um, how do I cook a fried egg? Um, low temperature, I think. Really? Yes. Tell me more. Well, <laughs> well, it depends how you like your fried eggs. Some people like them really crispy, but I think they can get tough. Well, you get that bit that's almost see-through where the protein's been absolutely frazzled. I think um, yeah, your pan of oil or even butter if you're uh, feeling that way out, and then a lower temperature and almost poach it in the fat so it's nice and soft. And then if you want a little bit more crispy, you can always turn the heat up at the end and crisp it. Interesting. Because so many times fried eggs are crispy on the outside and actually there's like floppy bits of raw white oh. in the middle, which is... Never good, especially first thing in the morning. What about um, basting? Yeah, I'm a baster, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I tend to go really hot and then baste, but you're teaching me a well, things here. Well, th that could work, as long as it's quick enough. I just don't like it when you get, you know, when the white becomes so sort of something like something else, like it's so coagulated and... Blah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Denatured protein molecules. Not <laughs> well, nice. That's what neg is, isn't it? Mm, well, it's not definitely... No, I mean the cooked egg. Yes, yes. But it doesn't have to be all 
absolutely denatured, does it? No, true. Okay, well, now we've got the sound levels right, and I've uh, I've learned something. Um, Tommy, thank you very much for uh, meeting me today. Am I the smelliest person who's ever been in your lovely restaurant? No, because I've got a brigade of chefs upstairs in a hot kitchen. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good point. Um, what is your favourite vegetable? Oh, God. Uh, what is my favourite vegetable? Probably peas, because when we grow peas and we pick them absolutely tiny, um, you bite them. We never cook them. We always serve them raw because oh. they're so delicious. They're so sweet. And, and when you bite them, they pop. Uh, I think it's a really special, special thing. Oh, fresh, Yeah, that fresh pea. Because we live in a world of frozen peas, yeah. um, actually getting peas from the greengrocer, or for you growing them, is so, it's totally different, it is different, isn't it? I mean, in fairness, frozen peas are a really good product that like obviously sustain people, but that, I think that's the thing. When you get something like... The reason why I think I said peas is because they can be so much more than, than what we think they are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good first uh, first answer. So I'm cycling around Yorkshire for a month. Um, back in my youth, I cycled around the world um, for four years. And my diet on there was mostly banana sandwiches. These days, really? it's now um, 2019. So I've upgraded on this trip to banana wraps. If you had to go, if you had to go cycle for two thousand miles around Yorkshire, uh, what would you be eating? Bearing in mind you have to carry it. Uh, um, banana wraps is quite interesting. Do you do you wrap it, wrap the wrap around the banana, and it's still sort of banana shaped, and then just yeah. munch it? Yeah, interesting. Um, I don't know. Obviously, you guess you need something quite high carby. Do you? To I like oats. I do like like flapjack and things like that. I think that would be a good high energy uh, thing for me. And, uh, yeah, I think I drink a lot of milk as well. Ooh. I like milk. And yeah. I think it's an underdrunk thing. Pint of milk and yeah, a hot pint, day. Yeah, pint of milk and some flapjack, I think, would get me around. Okay, I will, uh, that, I'll, I will do that as an homage to you. Um, right, I'm curious to know, why is your food good here? Mm, I'm curious to know that as well. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's... I think the food itself, we we do quite normal sort of good good techniques. I think I think with any sort of food, cuisine anywhere in the world, if you follow the basic principles and and the science behind cooking, you can get it pretty right. But I think what makes ours particularly interesting is um, the sort of the ethos behind what we do, which is growing and foraging a lot of the produce. And I think that's where you get very unique flavors. Back on the milk thing, right. if you go in through, um, no, not too far from here, I've discovered this amazing uh, little farmer who has a vending machine where they have raw milk, so totally unpasteurized, and it tastes unbelievable. Oh, where is that? So it's at Pick Hill. Pick Hill. And it's called Cow Corner. And corner, right. you literally go up, you, you slot your, it's like a pound a litre, I think, so you yeah. put your pound in, and there's the cartons there, and you literally get a pounds worth of milk and you walk out and drink it but when I was a little boy we had a one cow that my granddad used to milk every morning and I thought milk tasted like sweet and creamy and then I realized actually it, it doesn't most of the time because you have the pasteurized milk from supermarkets which we all drink and I haven't had raw milk since I was about six years old until about a month ago when I discovered this uh, vending machine because there's so many uh, legislations in place that stop you from selling raw milk so they have to be quite highly scrutinized but the flavor is unbelievable i think the nutrition of it's a lot better as well so that's a definite uh visit yeah okay that is my next destination when i when and that's going to power you around your trip 
Okay. Milk and flapjack. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Nutritional <laughs> sporting advice from Tommy Banks. Um, <laughs> why Why do you bother trying to make this place so good? I mean, there's plenty of successful pubs that just do really nice pub grub. You put in a lot of effort and headaches and work here. Why, why do you try and make it really good? Um, well, actually, initially it came from the location. Because when we first started, we did just run a pub. And they're probably not even a very good one, actually. And um, that was 2006. And 2008, when the big sort of crash happened, suddenly people weren't coming out into the middle of nowhere to 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 visit us. And um, what most pubs did in the bad e- economy was um, discount, you know, two-for-one steak nights, all these sort of things, bargains. Well, that's all very well. But you're not going to travel out into the middle of nowhere for a bargain when you can get that probably from your local pub so i think the only way for us to survive was to do something more premium something that would make us into a destination that people would travel to to get here to actually try it that was the only way we could survive was to do something out of the ordinary um so it was born out of necessity really that's really fascinating that you deal with hard times by making stuff more expensive that's a really unusual approach isn't it I think so, but I think there's only there's only two ways of dealing with it, isn't there? You can either go the discount way or the other way. And with our location, I think the, the problem with the discount thing is if there's no margin on it, you're never going to survive anyway, even if you are getting people through the door. But it it does work. And, you know, certainly in bad economic times, the bottom of the market often does survive. Um, but the middle of the market probably doesn't. And, and But I think it was really forced by location. But of course, the thing is, if you've no idea... It's all very well saying I'm going to make something the best it can be with an idea of it becoming a destination. But how how do you do that if you've no idea? And I think there's certainly a year or two where I was like, we need a thing. I don't know what it is, but we need a thing. And like, why would you travel a long distance somewhere because it's unique? And, you know, I was thinking of top restaurants, which have a real thing about them that people would travel a long way for. And that's when we started growing produce and foraging because I was like, I don't have any culinary background at all actually um I can't just I wasn't trained in Paris I start cooking some amazing French food and everyone will come for it the only sort of food memories we had were actually growing our own food and eating it as, as a kid so we started doing that and by putting these restrictions in place and trying to aim towards a more self-sufficient angle that really up the creativity because you have to be creative to to make things and it all kind of came together but certainly there was a year or two where we were just doing quite strange food and no one came <laughs> okay that's, in- that's really interesting so before you there was a time when you weren't trying to make amazing food you were just was it just a fairly normal nice-ish pub yeah and that was absolutely. that the, fish was and chips steak pie okay. normal, normal stuff, and was yeah. that your limit of your aspirations at the time so if for example if that had carried on trundling along happily enough would you have just stayed doing that yes quite possibly yeah i think so um but you don't i mean when we started the show, i had no idea what a michelin star was or um a tasting menu or and, and it was all unknown you know grew up in old and hadn't left old and we just wanted to make a nice pub and you know hopefully it was all right yeah, i i find the the story of you uh starting here with no uh training uh really interesting and i just wonder what were your parents thinking when they bought this place and put you and your brother in charge because you were a pair of numpties yes what, still are really yeah. yeah what were they thinking i've no idea i i still question it now we, we ran um so we've got a really small farm 
which would never make ends meet. So growing up, my dad did um, a lot of contract farming. So he worked really, really hard. And uh, mum ran a bed and breakfast in the farmhouse. So all the way growing up, we were kind of involved in hospitality because we always had people staying in the in the farmhouse. And I think naively they thought it was the next obvious step was to maybe get the village pub and try and run that because they've been running a bed and breakfast. So I suppose that was sort of the in. But for me and James, when we started this, I was 17. I literally left school halfway A levels because like it seems like way more fun running a pub than being here. Uh, and James had already left school. And I think it, obviously we weren't um, unintelligent. We weren't bad lads, but we weren't focused. But I think as a at age of 15, 16, as a, as a, especially as a lad, I think it's quite hard to be focused on academia really. Um, so yeah, no, it was a bit of a, but I don't think we, we certainly didn't make a success of it at any time okay. early. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's um, one of the reasons that I'm uh, spending a month cycling around Yorkshire is that I grew up um, in Yorkshire, but so far um, I've been going for a week. I haven't actually one or two places. I've basically haven't been anywhere that I've seen before in my mm. life. And I'm really interested by this idea of what knowing home. So um, what, what does home mean to you? Um, well, it's the, the so I'm the total opposite. I've never actually left home, and uh, I know so I know my area around me really, really well. Um, I think when you spend a long time in an area, you begin to know the seasons very, very well. And when you're involved in sort of agriculture and cooking, um, I always kind of brag that I think if you put me in like a time capsule and then just drop me in Oldstead, I could tell you to within a week what sort of time of year it was by by the seasons. And I think you get a real, for me, home is I is an understanding. Whereas I go anywhere, just if I went over to Lake Street something, I wouldn't have the sort of same connection. I'd be like, oh, that's weird. Like, oh, that's flowering now. And, and that's then they're doing this. And, oh, well, I don't think we'd be doing that. You know, and I think it's more of a connection, really. I feel it as opposed to, the actual sort of buildings and the location. It's more just like the general feeling of being around and in the land, I think. I, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it That's does. Strange. It, no, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting because I grew up also in a tiny village, very similar size to this, but in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, and yeah, I was just desperate to get out. Mm. And for years, I just thought that the interesting world began away from here. And so totally. I spent years just going off all around the world um, for many years. And it's only recently that I've come home and started exploring home and mm. taken more of an interest in it in the way that you're kind of saying. But um, And and I think that, um, yeah, so 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 that the, the point of that is that I'm trying in my way to live adventurously. That's what I want to do is live an mm. adventurous life. And this, the, one of the other reasons I'm cycling around is to try and meet interesting people who are living adventurously but in different kinds of ways mm. and what you're doing is definitely bold and adventurous in a different way so i'm wondering um what would your take on living adventurously mean just just to touch back on what you what you okay. were saying there i think when you grow up in like a rural area you do think i want to get out of here and i did think that and i really i i think you end up being carved by like necessity, like I talked earlier about changing what we did through the necessity of the economy, but also through the situations you're put into. And I always wanted to be a cricket player, actually. I wanted to travel the world playing cricket. Me too. Uh, Mint, awesome. Um, but 
I got quite ill when I was sort of 19. My plan was then was to spend the winter in Australia playing club cricket there. And I think if I'd never got ill, I'd have done a totally different path. I had no interest in doing this whatsoever. I too wanted to travel the world and be adventurous and do things, but I couldn't. And I think that reevaluated my my situation and, and actually that's why suddenly you play with the tools you've got in front of you and I think that's why I threw myself into this to make a success of it because of the situation I was in um, but what was the actual question well, what would I, I think I, about yeah. being adventurous well I, I can't remember what the question was because that's more interesting what you <laughs> said and I th- but I think this is this is a really interesting thing that a lot of people um, I talk to really want to live adventurously in their own ways but they can't mm. because of x y and z and that's usually time or money they're the two yeah. usual ones but in your case it was it was illness wasn't yeah. it and you were um you were more or less in in and out of hospital for about a year yeah um so what then did what did that experience that year teach you uh it's a very humbling experience i mean i think the thing was i had um not that all diseases aren't nasty but the disease i had was um ulcerative colitis which meant i actually as an 19 year old lad had a colostomy bag for a year which is not cool <laughs> in any stretch of the imagination not cool for your street credit I think I think it um it made me not an angry person but kind of like frustrated with the cards I've been dealt and I think very determined to be successful which I would never have had that determination otherwise because I was pretty chilled out and I was um I was you know I wasn't successful academically I had no drive really the only thing I was interested in was playing sport and actually having a good time and a laugh and I I would never have had the drive to do something but after that I kind of felt oh I've got no qualifications I'm this horrible skinny teenager with a colostomy bag I I need to really pull my finger out and make something (laughs) of myself and I think that it gave me a drive and determination I wouldn't have had. So I think in a lot of ways, it was an awful time. But in many ways, I have a lot to be thankful for it because I had no idea what I... I mean, I wouldn't. I definitely would not be in Oldstead. I, I, like you, growing up in a rural, I would have gone off somewhere else and done something totally different, if not for that. But you get dealt these cards, don't you? And you kind of roll with it because mm. something good usually does come out of it. So are you now in a hurry in your life? Yeah, I, I need to not be, but I've definitely been in a hurry. And I think that's something that I'm finding that impatience has probably been a catalyst for success, but actually it's not a sustainable thing. It's interesting when we were talking earlier, you said I'm trying not to hurry as much. And I, th- I think that's that's exactly right. And it's something that over the maybe the next decade, I'm going to try and slow it down a little bit because I think there can be a lot of success in taking your time over things as well. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's different ways to do things, aren't there? Yeah. Um, would you rather have the best restaurant in the world or play cricket for England? Play cricket for England. <laughs> well, I think you always want what you have, the opposite to what you've got, don't you? But I mean, that was always the dream growing up. And I think I still love cricket more than anything. And I, I probably think about cricket more than anything else. Because um, as, as a kid, I was just uh, obsessed, statoholic, uh, used to watch teletext flash over, oh, yeah. which is fairly dull. But I used to find it enthralling. Um, so I think that's still my first love, yeah. Um, how was the World Cup final? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing. I think that was the 
best advert for cricket ever because people know I'm obsessed with cricket, but most people don't like cricket. So they're always like, what's the, what's the point in it? You know, and then that was the ultimate advert. And with it being on telly, yeah. that is wonderful. Isn't it? I think that's brilliant because growing up, I watched cricket and when, since it's not been on free-to-air telly, I think you miss out on a generation of children who could have seen it. And I think with it being on telly, the amazing thing was we had like seven hours of high-tension drama then was a draw and then another draw of which England won on a technical rule which no one even knew about in the first place that yeah. couldn't be any more cricket yeah. oh, that's why I love it oh yeah it was amazing wasn't it yeah also growing up in a rural village one of my main memories of a, being a teenager when I started to find being in a village really boring mm. was trying to sleep as late as I could just to kill a bit of time and waking up ready for the test match yeah so get settled in in front of 11 o'clock, but then you come down, the covers are on, it's raining. Oh, oh no. no, what am I going to do? Watch yeah. some highlights. But the other the thing for me, the escapism was actually, if I could play cricket for men's teams on a Saturday, you, as a teenager, you get, if you were good at cricket, like you could get a team to play for, you get picked up, taken for a game of cricket, taken to the pub, yeah. a few beers and then come back. And so I was... I was living the dream as a 14, 15 year old. You said, because it was decent at cricket, you'd say, everyone wanted you to play for them. So you go around playing all the time. You get driven everywhere and you go to the pub it was a great social and I think I think sport is a really there's a lot of uh, values in sport which can transfer into into business but into just your general life and I played so much team sport growing up and I always seemed to be made the captain and I think the man management skills I developed at a very young age helped me a lot when I actually got into the kitchen and looking after two other people it's interesting isn't it how things you do at one time in your life prove very helpful for another time in life you can't predict at the time no not at all but i think that's why it's not just classroom activities that develop people you know and i think i think i think sport's incredibly important but any other sort of activity that is involving human interaction i think that's the really important thing because that's really how you get on isn't it how you unless you're on your own rowing across the atlantic <laughs> of course and you only have to get on with yourself that's probably what i struggle with most actually getting on with myself people. <laughs> right. um I get a um, a veg box at home, just okay, from cool. local veg, which I love for yeah, the nice seasonality of it and learning to cook new things. But beetroot, you get a lot of it. There's a yeah. season of a lot of beetroot. How okay. can I make beetroot not be disgusting? Well, our signature dish is the beetroot cooked in beef fat, which transforms it somewhat. Um, I think if you cook anything long enough in, in beef fat, it starts tasting pretty good. Um <laughs> But, but I, I know what you mean. It's so funny because that is our signature dish, but so many people come to restaurants and say, oh, no, I don't like beetroot, and they refuse to eat it. And you're like, oh, please. And I think it comes from like a school dinners sort of thing where you had that pickled beetroot that was so acidic. Um, but I think that's a really, that's yeah, cooking beef fat is a really good way of doing it. But actually pickling it, but doing it in a slightly sweeter pickle with some nicer vinegar than the malt vinegar that have used would is a really nice way to have it as well. Okay, thank you. Um, I was reading a... Um an interview you did once in which you said that you felt a bit weird that you'd reached this pinnacle, you'd done brilliantly. Um, you've reached this sort of pinnacle without really feeling that you were, in your words, pioneering in any way or doing anything amazing. Classic yeah. imposter syndrome. Yeah. Do you still feel like an imposter? Less so, but I think... Uh, um, I feel we took steps from that. I think that the thing with that was I... One of missions are at 24, which was the youngest ever or something, which is 
which is fine. But at the time, I, I was very insecure in the way that we were cooking. And certainly, the food that I cooked at the time was out of other people's cookbooks. So a top chef would, <laughs> would bring out a really good cookbook. I'd be like, that's a great recipe. I'd, t- I'd tweak it a little bit. And hey, the food was very good. Of course it was. because it, But it wasn't. there was no originality. And where I sort of felt fraudulent was the people hailing me as some sort of genius when actually um, I think if a lot of people applied themselves they could probably recreate other people's food and make it quite good um, and that was a real catalyst to try and do something more unique because I was like if I'm going to keep getting this praise I really ought to deserve it in some way so that was the way of um, of being more creative and really inspired the garden and the farm um, but imposter syndrome, I think we all have that though, because, um, but I think we all look at other people and their achievements and hold them in higher esteem than we'd ever hold our own achievements. And so I think we all feel a little bit like imposters and think, well, look at them, they're doing something amazing. They probably mirror image it back. Um, but I think that's a good thing. But one thing I've always learned is that you always think things are going to feel better than they actually do. I mean, you might be the right person to ask about this because I always, I had these, oh, I'd love to be able to do that or that. And then you achieve it and you're like, Okay, well, we'll try and achieve this. And I never feel quite fulfilled, which I always feel very disappointed about. But then your goals are more extreme and like more precise, I suppose, like something like, you know, rowing the Atlantic, traveling right, right the way around the world. Do you get the buzz that you were hoping for at the end? Or do you hope for a buzz? I don't know. Or is it all a little underwhelming by the time you've done it? I don't know how you feel about it. Because I struggle with that. I always find that I wanted to achieve something, achieve it, and then it doesn't give me what I thought it might. I feel exactly that. And when I get to the end of something, something that on the face of it seems like a big achievement, what I generally think is, oh, well, if I've achieved it, it wasn't that hard. I should have yeah. tried something harder. <laughs> or like, um, And big journeys, so yeah. something like cycling around the world, which I, I set off at 24, so you the same age as you getting your yeah. Michelin star. I think the one thing, good thing that age has for it is just reckless enthusiasm energy as well energy yeah um and just a sufficient ignorance to just get on with stuff (laughs) but yeah so i set off cycling around the world and i was very conscious that it would have been really foolish of me to be doing the whole journey purely in order to get to the finish line and the achievement Uh, that would have been a stupid thing to spend four years doing that so it was really trying to appreciate the things along the way which is easier said than done and yeah, getting to the end, I felt very flat and an anticlimax. Mm. Everything I ever do, journeys, writing books, finishing films, when I'm finished, I'm like, Bleh, what's next? And, and I, I don't like that. But yeah. Like, do you feel an emptiness after like, that thing that I yeah. was putting everything towards? You almost don't want to achieve it because you're always striving for something. And then when you achieve it, it's like, oh, I need something now to achieve. Otherwise, you're just flat and empty. I mean, we were just talking about the World Cup. How, do you, how does it feel to win the World Cup? Like, how do you get up after that? Like, what do you do? Yeah, I, I think I think you know, people who are serial achievers are like sports people. Someone like Roger Federer. How does he have the drive to do that over and over? Because once he's won everything, like, what does he do? He needs to find some like aliens that play tennis against have like four arms or something. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. it's it's a weird one. But it's interesting to hear you say that. I think I I think if not that I could ever achieve. So things that you would achieve because I just don't think I think I'd just give up long before. But I think I would really struggle with afterwards what to do next. So do you do you say get getting the Michelin star? Say once you've achieved that, did that does that encourage you to want more and more and more move on to the next level, or does it make you worry that you might lose 
what you've got. So you, does it put you wanting to achieve more or does it make you think, oh, I've got this and I'm worried I'll lose that? Because you can only go, once you've got Michelin stars, you can only really go downhill, can't you? I suppose so. <laughs> it's a cheerful uh, thing to yeah, tell you. Yeah, it is cheerful. Uh, I think um, a little bit more of a slightly different approach. I think, um, no, I think less actual worry about it. I don't certainly don't worry about losing it. There's bigger things in life than that. Uh, I think actually, before I achieved it, you think that's the pinnacle, it's all you can achieve. And then once you achieve it, you think, I'm actually that bothered actually now. There's actually more important things. Like I'm much more interested in creating something amazing that's going to put a smile on someone's face or or getting into like opening another restaurant, like changing the way we farm, uh, making different products, like investigating other things, writing another book, things like that are more inspiring to me than, than that but i mean like at the same time if what i want to do is make the restaurant better and better every single day and if we do that then perhaps more mission styles will come our way because we're making it better all the time but i'd certainly would never be getting out of bed thinking are we gonna get that second star like it doesn't really enter my brain okay that's interesting um one of the things that i've really noticed slightly changing in my own life actually i'm just going to ask it for you first before i tell you about me is do you, in your life, do you measure your successes or do you measure your progress? Um, progress, I think. I think 100%. Because um, I think going back to that thing, like successes never feel like they just become, once you've achieved it, it's just one of them things, isn't it? Um, whereas progress, I used to have a thing which I can no longer achieve, but um, I used to have this thing that I used to try and do three things a day, every day, seven days a week that made the black swan better when it was I talk about when I was like 24 and so then I, was like, I felt like this imposter syndrome exactly that and I'm thinking how can I, I I've got to make because people are traveling here now and like expecting this to be awesome and maybe it's maybe it is good but maybe it could be better and there was just a million things that could be better and I tried to do three things a day every day and I think that's when I had real high achievement because I was just nailing it every day but so I just what now sort of things that I think that's well, a fascinating could idea. It, it, it could be anything that I thought I thought was better it could be from sourcing a new piece of equipment that was going to make things better or or changing a dish that I believed was better or um, implementing a new way of doing things or um, changing the way we have staff doing different things. Anything that I thought was going to have a positive impact on the, the future of the restaurant. Um, but it had to be three things that were progressive. It didn't have to be, oh, I've made a new way of making this sauce and that's amazing. It wasn't all food-based. It was more sort of um, team-based, business-based, location-based. Now, uh, like probably if I could do three things in a week, I'd be quite happy. Yeah, well, I, is, I presume that's because in the early days, there's a lot to improve, isn't there? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it probably had a lot simpler um, situation. You know, I think, I think in them days, I probably only received an email once a week or something so there was a lot of um things that could be the whereas now it's you know life's all about administration more than anything so if you had if you had one hour extra day just to do just for yourself one extra magic hour what would you do each day um i'd probably exercise um because that's something that makes me feel really good but i, I never get to do i find it very stressful like if i try and take an hour out of the day to do like if i went to the gym or go for a run or yeah it was to find that i always find that very stressful because by the time you've done that hour and then you pick up you someone's emailed you someone missed a call you got to go see someone and i always think oh i can't afford to spend an hour doing that so if i had an hour extra day i would i would exercise because i think it would make me more um effective in everything else but not sufficiently effective to merit an hour as it is well it should do 
it should do. Um, that's something I just I know. You know, there's many things that you can say and you know you should do, but don't. And that's one thing that because I know the endorphins releasing you might makes you more energetic, makes you even if you're more tired, you're more energetic and makes you more creative. I think, but I tend to be overwhelmed by the schedule and just never get to it. Yeah. So you're almost thirty, or you are? 30? I'm thirty. You yeah. are thirty. Yeah. Any signs of a midlife crisis? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, well, I, I, we were talking about this earlier, actually. I now fear drinking, whereas as a young younger man, it was like the dream was going out and having beers with the lads. Like, uh, it just uh, it gives me a hangover and I feel awful and I, I'm not very productive afterwards. And then I feel guilty about my lack of production and I just don't need it in my life anymore. So I think that's one thing, that massive change. But it's not really a midlife crisis, is it? Yeah, that's been grown up. That's just been grown up. Uh, well, it's good you haven't got yeah. it yet. No, probably not then. Give it 10 more years. Yeah. You'll be riding a bike well, around Yorkshire. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> something like, I, yeah. I know I'm too busy at the moment to think of something, but I'm sure I would do. What, what's your midlife crisis? You can't say you had that because you rode around the world at 24, so it's not really a midlife crisis riding around Yorkshire. No, my midlife crisis really came with um, cha the change from being a um adventurous ambitious hard-working um full-on charging at life madly yeah. want to be the best i can be bah, 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 bum. um and then getting married and having kids and suddenly having to compromise in my life right um and suddenly me selfish me was not the only thing in the world that was the challenge i faced okay yeah i i, I definitely um I definitely chase a little bit um, such, like things hurt more, don't they? Like I still play cricket a bit, but I'm nowhere near as good. And I'm very frustrated. Like I'm playing cricket tomorrow. And I, I said, Charlotte, she's just like, maybe you just need to play more regularly because you're getting so bad at it. And like, I definitely chase that. I'm like, I know I could be better if I played more. So maybe that's starting to get a little bit of a midlife crisis. Like, I haven't really cared that my ability was getting worse and worse, but suddenly I do. Like I feel it falling away from me. So maybe that's the start of something. Yeah. Maybe I'll just start playing cricket three days a week that'd be nice and I'd get the exercise thing covered as well yeah oh that would be lovely wouldn't it um going back to when you got started how did you manage to get some work experience in Raymond Blanc's re restaurant because he must get a million young idiots getting uh, in touch with him yeah probably does I mean I was only there I wonder where you I only did a few days well, there. Yeah, yeah exactly I know it's only um, a taster I think, but I think actually it's something that in our industry is quite common um so usually you just email a restaurant and say i'd love to come and do um a, what you call a stage which comes from the french word like stage here i mean you're just there for a time uh and it's just free work experience that we, we have someone to, we have someone every week for the next six weeks coming here okay. and they'll come and do a week um it's quite common and also it's a great way of re recruitment because you think if you have somebody in for an interview how do you know if they're any good how do they know if they want to work there if you go and do a week somewhere you're, you're fairly certain about the place and you're fairly certain about them so it, it's actually fairly common place in our industry which is a really nice thing because a lot of industry and we a lot of people wouldn't share i think traditionally chefs would, would never share their recipes whereas now we just allow people to come in and out and it's cool like people come into your kitchen for a week they see everything you do they move on but it's all just part of it you know? okay that's fun that's really mm. interesting one of the, my life my working life is very lonely mm. i i travel around on my own doing stuff and then i sit in a shed and i write books <laughs> <laughs> and i yeah. love it yeah but um what i really love the idea of is is mentors and so mm. did you did this sounds like a really good system of trying to help young people come up 
Was it, did, 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 did you have any of that mentorship helping you or not really? Not, um, not in like necessarily really in a chefing way, but I think um, definitely my parents have, because I've never really left home. They've always kind of been, been there um, in, in that sense, I suppose. Um, but I, I think, I think um, the having people in and like young people, I think it's really important because actually you learn from them as well. There's always something, when you sit down and talk to someone, you always learn something. So I think it's quite good to have that sort of free, free movement and, and, and not be protective over anything, uh, your intellectual property really, because at the end of the day, you're not going to like it anyway. In a year's time, you're going to thought of something new. So um, there's just no need to be, yeah, protective. I think it's just good to just be free with things. I've found exactly the same in terms of, um, so about, gosh, 10 years or so ago, I thought, right, I want to try and, earn a living out of adventure stuff in order to do that people need to know about me because yeah. no one knows anything about me so the way i started telling the world was by blogging mm. writing 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 and what i found through blogging is the more i give away the better things become so i just tell everyone mm. everything i know how everything just tell 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 I've, and there are some other adventurers i know who are very protective like, oh don't tell anyone but whereas i really think that the more you give away the more you receive back. Absolutely. The thing is, you can't bank on the things you know now being only the things you're ever going to know. I think that's where people go wrong. Exactly what you're saying. It's like, oh, don't tell anyone about this. It's like, well, just tell them about it because what you need to do as an adventurer is find something else. You can't just bank onto these secrets forever. And I think that's the same with, with cooking. There's no point being protective over what you're doing right now because really you're not doing your job properly if you haven't discovered something totally new within a couple of years. And then you're not going to be interested in what you're doing anyway. So you might as well share it. Yeah, share it and move on. Um, and I guess you're sort of backing yourself then, aren't you? So you say, yeah, I'll give it away. I can still yeah. Yeah. keep ahead with things. Um, I'm interested in how you balance sort of having months of planning, like, right, we're going to plant a load of onions and they'll mm. be ready in six mm. months or however long an onion takes to grow. Plant loads of onions versus the spontaneity and imagination of, oh, we've gone foraging and we found a load of sorrel today so how do you this is something that i struggle a bit with how do you what's the difference between planning versus just action in your life yeah it's it is a difficult balance i think going back a few years it was all action no planning and <laughs> it made for very interesting exciting food and um quite sort of yeah stressful um but then as we've got busier and bigger you've got to have more planning or it, or it doesn't work or if you don't have planning you can't actually put anything on the menu because unless you grow a certain number of them, you haven't got enough. I can't serve a red pepper to three people and then the other person has a tomato because that's I've only got three of them and two of them. You know, I need to grow enough of of the things to do to do enough of. So what we generally try and do is we'll have like a, a, a list of ingredients that we know we want to put on the menu. We don't necessarily have to come up, we'd have to come up with a dish eight months in advance, but we kind of know roughly what we might do with them and we make sure we grow a big volume of them so we're going to have enough to use on the, the menu and then we'll grow some experimental crops as well and then sometimes you end up doing things not as you planned but unless you actually have the the ingredients in the first place you, you can't really do anything so the key thing is to get the number so i know i've got enough of these to serve every guest for a month what we do with it nearer the time is a little bit more spontaneous i think that that's the sort of balance strike that balance it works quite well if you just go oh we'll wing it in the sea and you're like oh i've come up with this amazing dish yeah we've only grown four plants of that though so you can't actually serve it to anybody that's where we kind of went wrong in the first place um so you need to have the lay down the sort of sensible 
slightly boring foundation, the safety net of, right, yeah. we need this, 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 and this. And then... Things that you know you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's an important thing that then on top of it, you can just throw on the sort of crazy, I found a whatever, go with it. Exactly. It's like, well, we've got a polytunnel full of tomatoes and until three days ago, we didn't know what we were going to do with them, but they're all getting ripe. And originally we were going to go to actually the cow corner place to tell you about. We we're going to make some uh, fresh ricotta and serve that with the tomatoes, a really simple dish. And then suddenly at the last minute, the tomatoes ended up being semi-dried. Um, so they're quite sort of um, sour and sweet and sour and served with scallops. So like, it just how did that happen? You know, um, that's the beauty of it but we didn't have the tunnel full of tomatoes we wouldn't be able to do any of it so i think it's quite nice to yeah it's it's spontaneity but with organization in the background mm. when i was um cycling around the world i had a phrase that i used a lot called pragmatic recklessness because what i wanted to do on that trip was be as reckless and crazy and spontaneous as i could because i was a young guy having a big wild adventure around the world but equally if you go full-on reckless through africa or colombia then you might well die yeah. <laughs> or at the very least fail. So so I came up with this system of trying to be pragmatic. So lay down the basics of I need visas for here. I need to work out where there's a war, mm. blah, 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 sensible kind of thing. And then on top of that, just throw the recklessness of to hell with it. Let's turn down that road and mm. accept this invitation for these dodgy looking people to their house and just see what happens. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that was That's my nice approach. Balance. I like pragmatic that. recklessness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, you've started a new restaurant yeah. in York called Roots. Mm -hmm. um, how long has that been going? Uh, it was last September that we opened. Wow. Yeah. Um, has Joe Root been to Roots? He hasn't. He should do, really. Yeah. Is that on your... Maybe I should invite him. ...to-do list? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're doing so well with this place here. It's a fantastic success story. Why expand why do, why are you getting busier doing that thing why are you risking mm. failure to your reputation why don't you just stick with this place that's doing great uh it's a it's a good question i think it came from from uh, sort of two things one we're not fully booked all the time now we're, we're busy but we're not fully booked. there was a time when we were totally fully booked so you couldn't get in so there would seem like there was a necessity to open to have more seats available for people to eat things or put your price up yeah, I don't think that's a long term. Like it's all very well, but you're never going to be fully booked forever, are you? And then when you've put your prices up, I think you know. I think you've got to think. You can't. There's no get rich quick in in any form of life. Okay. I don't think. So I don't think that's a sustainable thing to do. Um, but the other thing was was more from the the actual growing point of view because we were expanding the growing. We we're growing lots of different things, but actually, when you're just doing one menu uh, in one place, it's very hard. You can't be self-sufficient. You have no use for a lot of the stuff because you might use um, all the tomatoes one size but not the other size or you know, if you grow too much things or you could use one part of the plant but not the other. So we need another outlet really and, and with, with Roots it's allowed us to become much more self-sufficient because it's a little bit more casual. It's kind of a sharing plate sort of thing and uh, it allows us to use all the produce but the flip side is we don't have to force it at the Black Swan. Whereas in the past, I'd have to force it because I've grown all this. We'll have to use it and I'll have to use them. Even though that's not quite 
what I wanted. I'm going to use it anyway because I've got to. I can't waste things. Whereas now we can cherry pick exactly what we want for the black swan and then use everything else still gets used. Not that there's anything wrong with the other things, but if, you know, if you're trying to really get the exact specification of something that you want. So it, was, it was a, enables us to be more self-sufficient and sort of close the, the, the circle a bit more. Okay. That's a, yeah. You have a good answer to that. Um, on the, the roots, um, I was reading that you do, the food comes in, there's three seasons essentially, you break mm, down the mm. year into three seasons, which I love these phrases. You have the, the preservation season, the hunger gap, and the time of abundance. Yeah. Um, which I love those. Uh, they could all be novels. They're great <laughs> uh, phrases. Um, what, what are they briefly? Well, interesting novels, they actually came about from me writing a book. So I have a book called Roots, which came before the restaurant. And I suppose Roots also has sort of the concept of the book. And the idea is I wanted to write a cookbook. And I was very nervous about writing a cookbook because I think that it's there forever. And I didn't feel they, like it was very... I was far enough down the down my culinary journey. However, I also felt what we're doing needed to be recorded. Um, and I started off on most cookbooks are spring, summer, autumn, winter. If you're a farmer up in North Yorkshire there isn't really any produce in spring. In fact, most of our produce doesn't really come to the middle of June. But when I pick up chef's books, so there are always you know, peas and beans and things like this all in sort of April and May in their, in their books. And that's fine. They do grow in Europe and then we chip them in and use them. So I kind of thought, well, I can't write truly a spring, summer, autumn, winter book and believe in it. Whereas I, I see it as January through to June, we call the hunger gap for a reason because we don't really have anything there's a few seasonal gems like amazing Yorkshire rhubarb some great root vegetables and last year brassicas but we use an awful lot of things that we've preserved um, and then right now it's uh, July now it's a time of abundance because I can literally do menus with just the produce that comes straight from the land little amounts of effort into it cook it serve it it's beautiful but that's a very short window and then the end of the year we we really spend frantically trying to preserve as much of the later the harvest and, and and the autumn's brilliant because you get so much stuff from the hedgerows and that's just a free harvest uh, if you know what to do with it. Um, so we frantically try and make as much stuff between then and the end of the year to last us through. So I, I felt like we cooked with three seasons anyway. And from a but it, from a growing and cooking point of view, there isn't four seasons. There's kind of like the time we got loads of stuff, the time we got nothing. And there's a time when there's a bit of autumnal stuff. So the, the three kind of came together. Yeah, I really love it. And something, I haven't figured this out in my head yet, which isn't good, because um, it's going to be too late, but somehow I feel this is applies to life, like the phases of life, the, the hunger gap, the time of abundance, the preservation season. I haven't worked it out yet, but I've got a month on the bike. I think that's a good, there's a, the, about the different phases of your life. Um, so I'm going to try and figure that out and I'll get back to you when I do. Yeah, I kind of get it. I mean, it's a very traditional uh, way of looking. The hunger gap is not a phrase I made up. That's a traditional um, okay. uh, It's a traditional thing, I think. Uh, going back before we had refrigeration and air freight and sea freight and everything, like when people were more self-sufficient, they would talk about the hunger gap when nothing grows. And the hunger gap actually doesn't really refer to January and February. It refers to... Um, the month of may usually because the month of may could be scorching hot beautiful everyone thinks it's a lovely time but that's actually the time when the plants grow there's nothing to eat to harvest that's the time when we've got lovely weather but we need all the energy to go into the plant to create something that we can then harvest in the time of abundance or the, the preserving season so that was it's a, quite an old-fashioned term i think like going back a few hundred years okay. that, oh, that, 
The day has not been wasted. That's thank you. <laughs> um, so my last question to you is: um, I'm cycling around Yorkshire for a month. Um, one of the great things about cycling is you're continually hungry and mm-hmm. therefore very greedy. Um, where where do you go as a chef? Where do you go when you've got an evening off and you want to want a nice meal in Yorkshire? Okay. Um, so, well, my favourite thing to do is actually Sunday lunch. Uh, amazing. We used to cook Sunday lunches at the restaurant for years. And I thought I never wanted to touch one, eat one again, see another Yorkshire pudding. But since we stopped doing Sunday lunches, I now think they're the best thing. I can see why it's our tradition, like roast beef and Yorkshire puddings and meat and two veg and all that. It's delicious. Uh, I go to a place called the Dorney Arms at Newton News, uh, which is a lovely little pub down on the River Ouse. And they just do the most brilliant Sunday lunch and it's really good value and incredibly good quality. And it's it's always rammed for Sunday lunch because everyone people know it's good. But that's like my my go to and that's my sort of happy place. No matter what time of year it is, like a little glass of red wine, Sunday lunch, it's pretty relaxing. Oh, it sounds very good. Tommy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for showing me around. You've been very gracious and generous and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. No, thank you for it's been a lot of fun. Cool. Cheers, Tommy. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. There's show notes from every episode on my website, alistairhumphreys.com slash podcast. If you have enjoyed it, please take a screenshot of your phone and pop it up on social media or leave a review with your podcast provider. It makes a massive difference. Thank you very much. To make this podcast happen, I teamed up with Kamut, the outdoor planning and navigation app that helps you explore more of the great outdoors. One of the many ways Kamut helps you have better adventures is through their highlights feature. Kamut highlights are recommendations from local adventurers in the area you want to explore. They could be a great cafe, a particularly beautiful stretch of trail, a lookout point, or a well-stocked shop. These recommendations appear on the map as highlights, large red dots for popular highlights, those with lots of additional information and images, or small red dots for highlights that have fewer comments and images. Inside the hint, the size of the dot doesn't necessarily correspond to the quality of the highlight in real life. It only indicates how many people have visited the highlight before you. Perhaps it's a little less visited and therefore all the more special. Your very own outdoor experiences and some inspiring highlights are waiting for you. Go explore more with Kamut. Head to kamut.com g and use the voucher code ADVENTUROUS to claim your free region bundle.